You are listening to Intergenerational Politics with Jill Wine-Banks and Victor Shi, where we host weekly political discussions that are engaging and relevant to all generations with experts on various issues facing our country today. This is Victor Shi. I'm one of the co-hosts of this podcast with Jill, and I'm also an incoming freshman at UCLA. Um, Jill, do you want to give us a brief introduction about who you are? Sure. Um, I'm a former Watergate special prosecutor um, in the, obviously in the big trial of the last scandal. And uh, I also was general counsel of the army and a corporate executive at Maytag and Motorola, um, head of the American Bar Association, the chief operating officer, and now the proud co-host of this podcast with Victor and looking forward very much to talking today to Legal Learned. Yeah. So um, like Jill said on our show today, we will be talking to Legal Learned from the ACLU about the important work that he's doing as the deputy director of the ACLU's Immigrants' Right Project. Um, and a documentary that he was featuring called The Fight, which highlights one of the most gut-wrenching policies of the Trump administration, which is separating children from their parents at the border in 2018. Um, Lee is a lawyer at the ACLU's national office in New York. He is widely recognized as one of the country's leading public interest lawyers and has argued dozens of groundbreaking civil rights cases during his career, including in the U.S. Supreme Court and virtually every federal court of appeals in the country. He has testified before the Houses of Congress during the past four years. He has successfully argued some of the country's most high-profile cases, including a challenge to uh, the Trump administration's unprecedented practice of separating families at the border, which we'll be talking about later today, um, the Trump administration's first and second asylum bans, and the administration's first travel ban. Um, Lee has won numerous awards for his work, regularly lectures around the country, and frequently appears at national and international media. In addition to his work at the ACLU, he is also an adjunct professor at Columbia Law School and for several years was a visiting professor at Yale Law School. So um, he has such an impressive background and we are so delighted to um, have you on um, today on our show, uh, Lee. And I want, to add, yeah, I want to add a special welcome, Lee, because uh, I was privileged to meet you in New York when you were given an award by the New York Society for Ethical Culture um, at the same time as Representative Nadler was getting an award. And uh, that was a wonderful meeting. But I have to say, and, and of course, we have a, a common Columbia link since that's my law school. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've wanted you as a guest ever since I saw the fight, which basically reduced mm -hmm. me to tears. And we're going to be showing some clips from the fight today. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just saying to our listeners, Get some Kleenex ready because if you have a heart, you will cry. Um, I know that it reduced my husband to actually sending money to the ACLU after watching that. He couldn't resist. And in addition to the pin I'm wearing today in your honor, which is uh, a mother and child because of the cases we'll talk about, about family separation, I'm also the proud owner. I don't know if any, can you see this at all? Yeah. My ACLU pin. Um, which I was given uh, by the Illinois um, ACLU. So welcome, Lee, and I'm going to turn it over to Victor for the first question. Well, thank you both so much for, for having me. This is a real honor for me. Um, and so I'm looking forward to our conversation. Likewise, thank we're so excited. Yeah. Um, so let's begin by talking about the fight, um, which is 
like Jill said, a brilliant and such a moving film that features four cases that ACLU argued, um, one banning transgenders from serving in the military, a second challenging putting a citizenship question on the census, um, the third protecting the right of a young detained immigrant to access an abortion, and the fourth, which is your case, challenging the family separation policy at the U.S.-Mexico uh, border. Um, it was such a remarkable film, but before we get into the case, I'd like um, all our listeners, especially my peers, thinking of a career in law to hear what it's like from you, uh, what it's like working at the ACLU. You know, there were so many moments throughout the film that made me fall in love with the work um, at the ACLU um, on behalf of public interest. Um, you know, during my high school career, I was involved in my high school's moot court competition and seeing Dale kind of, um, you know, go through the motion of, you know, Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court, that moment was kind of brought flashbacks just for the moot court competition. But I mean, for you, what is it like working at the ACLU? You know, how intense is it? Um, you know, what would you say for any aspiring lawyers who may want to work there? Um, I would say first and foremost, we need you. We need all the young people um, we get. We are overwhelmed by the number of issues we're trying to tackle. I, you know, I've been at the ACLU since the early 1990s, and it's been intense and busy that entire time, but nothing like the last four years. And I think the difference is that this administration is attacking the civil liberties across the board, immigrants' rights probably most, but across the board. So the ACLU was just so busy. And with respect to immigrants' rights, I've never been more busy. It's literally every week the administration is trying to do something fundamental to change and undermine mm -hmm. its rights. But, you know, I wouldn't trade my career for anything. It has been extremely intense. There have been difficult moments. There's sort of emotional roller coaster. There are periods where I'm very tired, particularly the last four years, but it gives me a chance to really fight back. And I think, you know, Jill, having been fighting back against these types of issues her whole career, you know, of course, knows what I'm talking about. I think you know, one of the things that the executive director of the ACLU said to us the day after the election is, look, some of you are, probably all of you are very worried about rule of law now and what's going to happen to your issues, but better to be in a place where you can actually fight back. And, and you know, and I think that's the way I've looked at it my whole career, is that it's a place where you can fight back and, and you'll work on the issues you're passionate about. Um, so I, I really love my, you know, now 25 plus years of the experience and would strongly recommend to young people that the ACA is a great place to work, but public interest generally mm -hmm. is a rewarding career. Um, the one thing I want to say, if I could just take another minute, you know, there's a lot of jokes about lawyers and we don't need more lawyers and, you know, but I think back to something that happened to me in the very beginning of my career, um, my, maybe my first big case. And it's something I actually think about almost every month. And I've thought about every month for the past 25 years is that the importance of lawyers and while it's all fun to joke about lawyers and we don't need more lawyers remember the power a lawyer can have in this society and so for me what happened is in texas i went down to texas it was my first big case it was a national case and 
I was meeting with a young woman who had been given forms to sign that she couldn't read, didn't understand, signed away all her rights and was gonna be deported. She was a 20 year old woman and we were bringing a case to say that the government needed to give people new hearings and revise the forms so people could understand and translate the forms. And my liaison was a grassroots organizer who was about the same age in our 20s. And she was there because she knew Texas and because she, her Spanish was a lot better than my client only spoke Spanish. And I remember her starting off the conversation by saying to the woman, Lee is here from New York and he's a muy importante abogado, very important lawyer. And afterward, I said to her very cavalierly, I said, you should have said I was a muy, muy, muy importante lawyer. <laughs> and she just smiled at me. But then I thought about it you know, a few weeks later and I realized that this grassroots organizer below the same age as me, how much wiser she was than I was because she recognized what this young woman needed to hear was that someone was on her side, not just anybody, but a lawyer, a United States lawyer who was gonna be just for her and advocate for her. And she recognized that people in our society who are that vulnerable but have a much different relationship with the government than we do needed to hear that someone was on her side and not just anybody and that it was a lawyer. And that gave her a real feeling of security. And from then on, I've always thought I'd try to part to young people that lawyers really have play an important role in society and that there are lots of other ways to help, but to, to really remember the importance of lawyers in our society and how important it is to vulnerable members of our society who, who need that help and need someone in the establishment to fight back for them. Yeah. So that is very well said, I, I, it, but I wanna ask you a question based on that and also make a comment. My, my comment is, of course, I started my career basically working for the government and it was at a time though where I was proud to go into court and say on behalf of the United States of America, mm -hmm. And to know that my assignment was to do justice, was to get to the truth. It wasn't, it wasn't what it is today, is what I'm saying. And I was proud to be a government lawyer then. Uh, but yeah. my question is, um, in addition to lawyers, does the ACLU have room for either interns while they're in school? Does it have room for either jobs at the ACLU? I know someone who used to work for me at the ABA works in uh, public relations and media communications for the ACLU. So there's those kind of jobs, but what other roles might people who want to be in the public interest, but aren't a lawyer yet or don't want right. to be a lawyer? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I, I certainly didn't mean to suggest that there are not ways to help other than being a lawyer. But so the ACLU has lots of ways to help. And it, it ranges from doing communications, which has become an apps. I mean, it's always been, but I think an absolutely critical part of our work to try and shape the public narrative around our issues. There are people who work in development because, you know, as crude as it is, we can't obviously do the money and do the work without the money. Um, there are organizers. There are people who do legislative work. 
there are all, and then there are people who are not yet lawyers who are either don't want to become a lawyer or intend to be, go to law school, interns, paralegals. So there's room for lots of different people. And I think it's a great place to see whether this is the type of work you want to do. And, and I also, I, you know, I want to be clear that lawyering is one way to do work, but if you're teaching, tutoring, working in a super, whatever way you want to do, I, I, way you want to try and give back, I think is, is critical. But the ACLU does have a broad range of ways to, to help. And I encourage young people to apply to be interns. We have a national office, but we also have state affiliates. Um, and sometimes that's an easier way to get in. And I, and I know Jill is very familiar with the Illinois chapter of the ACLU, but absolutely, you don't have to be a lawyer to work at the ACLU. And I think most public interest places have room for lots of non-lawyers as well. Yeah, I mean, they're so needed, um, especially at a time like this when so many of our fundamental rights and liberties are at stake. Um, something that I th saw throughout the film was, you know, you mentioned how intense the work is. Um, I think anyone who watched a film and saw your clip in it would see that you drink a lot of Diet Coke. Um, so how much Diet Coke is usually involved in the day for you? <laughs> uh, too much. That is one <laughs> of the things that I am working on. Um, I definitely got feedback from people that I'm drinking too much Diet Coke. I get that from my mom all the time from my wife. Um, yeah, I'm hoping for that endorsement, but I don't think that that's coming. So I need to just stop drinking the Diet Coke. But, you know, I think everyone has their way of yeah. sort of keep going. Um, mm -hmm. But things are intense. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, the film remarkably walks the audience through the first couple of months of the administration. Um, and, you know, it began with the Trump administration issuing a, his first travel ban seven days after his inauguration, um, banning foreign nationals from seven predominantly Muslim countries from visiting the country for 90 days, um, suspended entry to the country for of all Syrian refugees indefinitely and prohibited any other refugees from coming into the country for 120 days. Um, Trump claimed it was needed to keep radical Islamic terrorists out of the United States. And then, um, you know, later on, we saw the um, Trump administration um, announced that it was going to uh, separate families at the border. Um, one of the moments I just want to play um, right now is a piece that moved me, and it was by Rachel Maddow. Um, so I'm just going to play that for you. The AP has just broken some new news. Um, this has just come out from the Associated Press. This is incredible. Trump administration officials have been sending babies and other young children. Oh. <laughs> At least three. <sighs> graphic of this. Three tender age shelters in South Texas. Um, yeah, I think Rachel Maddow just really encapsulates just how personally moving this is. Um, being a public interest attorney at the ACLU for so long um, before this, was there anything? like this that was so dramatic or unprecedented for an administration to do? Like, how out of the ordinary was this policy when you first heard about it? Yeah, for I, I think it's by far the worst thing I have seen in my 25 plus years doing civil rights work at the ACLU. It was just something so brutal and so gratuitous about it and that it involves such young children that I, I, I it was really difficult 
to deal with it. I think I constantly was thinking about my own children and projecting that. And I think a lot of people and I think were, were feeling that. And I think that's why it's one of the few issues in the immigration area, at least, that's transcended the liberal conservative line, the Republican Democrat, where everyone said, well, look, we can have disagreements, reasonable disagreements about macro immigration policy, but we cannot take little children away. And I think that's why you saw the Pope come out, conservative religious leaders, why you saw Laura Bush write an op-ed in the Washington Post. It was just something so visceral and so brutal about it. And you know, the numbers were staggering and tell one story. I think what most people don't realize now is that it's now been more than 50, 5,400, nearly 5,500 families that have been separated. A lot of people are stuck with the number of 3,000 that originally came out, but more numbers have come out. And so it's, it's nearly 5,500. I think the numbers tell one story, but for me, the real story is in the individual cases. I mean, each one of those 50, nearly 5,500 is an individual case with its own brutal story. And so there was one child, a four-year-old Honduran boy who needed glasses and his parents were from very modest means and but were able to get him a pair of glasses but they also got him a special glasses case so that his glasses wouldn't break because they knew if the glasses broke he probably they probably would not be able to scrounge up the money to get another pair of glasses. When they came to take him away he fortunately was wearing his glasses but he didn't have his glasses cases. So and they didn't let the mother get the glasses case. So all day long, all the mother thought about is, can my little boy see? Are the glasses broken? Will they get him another pair of glasses? Will they give him a safe place to put his glasses away at night? Another father told us about how he asked, I know you're gonna take my seven-year-old son away, but please just give me a minute to try and talk to him in advance to brace him for what's gonna happen. They didn't give him that minute. They just screamed out, we're taking your son right now in front of the son. And the fun, son is begging his father, what's happening, what's happening? And another mother I talked to after we got her child back said, the four-year-old just keeps asking her, are men gonna come and take me away again in the middle of the night? It's just one story after another, a little 18-month-old baby being put in the car, being driven away and looking out the window at his mother standing there and the little boy craning his neck to try and see if the mother was gonna follow. It's just, it's just was absolutely brutal. And the fact that the administration wanted to do it, purposely did it, and even after the brutality of it was revealed, and even after the medical community said, this is gonna cause lasting damage to these children, the administration still wanted to do it. I think more and more is coming out about what happened internally, that there was this raise your hand if you want to separate children. Um, and so it, for me, a lot of, there's been a lot of brutality in this administration and not just this administration, the immigration area, but particularly this administration, but this was at its own level in my view. That, that really touches my heart to hear that. Um, because I think you're absolutely right. This is only one example, or you've given many examples, but all in the same area of deviations from anything that 
can be considered precedent for this country or even humanity for all of the world. Um, and the fight, the, the documentary, deals with particularly four cases that were basically basic to our rights and liberties in this country, LGBT rights, voting rights, reproductive rights, and of course, immigrant rights. And all of the lawyers featured in the film were remarkable. Their work made me proud to be a lawyer. You know, as you said earlier, you know, there's always this word about there's too many lawyers and there's so many lawyer jokes, but anyone watching this film will know all the things that are good that lawyers can do. And um, it also, of course, made me live uh, when, you know, the night before arguing in the Supreme Court and how I felt. And uh, it was exactly like everybody else. So it made me feel good that it wasn't just me that was agonizing and staying up and couldn't sleep. Um, you know, before you say the first words to the court, you know, standing there and nobody realizes how high up the bench is until you're actually standing there and you're looking up at the bench. Um, it's an amazing- or how close it is. How, exactly. How I mean, intimate it is with the, with the justices, yeah. It's, it's amazing. And um, of course, the case that you were about to argue uh, when you were going through that, the separation of families at the border, um, and actually separation probably is too kind a description because they're tearing apart families right. and right. it's not just separating. But um, I, I want to just talk a little bit about you. You, of course, were arguing the constitutional question of whether families had a right to stay together and whether this was basically cruel and inhuman behavior. And, right. um, you represented a particular person, Miss L, and um, she, in addition to being separated from her daughter, was subjected to cruel conditions at the detention center. Um, and you argued that this violated due process rights under the Fifth Amendment. But what, what was the response? What did the government actually argue to justify what they were doing? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think the government's response both evolved in court, but also was inconsistent in court with public statements to their base throughout. And what was interesting is that I argued the case on Friday, the first Friday in May, and the government tried to downplay that there was a practice going on, even though at that point we knew that at least 700 families had been separated or in your, your better words torn apart and tried to say that there were particular justifications for all 700 but at the, that monday morning then attorney general sessions gave a press conference saying we are going to deter people from coming to this country we are going to have zero tolerance if families are separated they're separated and so be it and so it's sort of went like that on two tracks um and it was interesting because they, i think they they didn't want to in court just come in and say look we're doing it we think we're, we're allowed to do it and so we're just going to do it whereas at the same time the administration was talking very tough but at the end of the day the public outcry was so enormous that the president pulled back we ultimately needed an injunction because the executive order he issued 
allegedly banning family separation had a million holes in it, but it was the first time that the administration had pulled back on a domestic policy in the face of public outcry. And I think if there's any silver lining in the family separation saga, it's that the public really can influence policy if they get out there in a strong enough way. And I, I think that's such an important thing for people to, to understand. And I think, Jill, you, you, know, you know this obviously, that no lasting structural civil rights changes come in court alone, that it has to be accompanied by a public movement and a public outcry. And I think with family separation, it was the closest I have seen to a real civil rights moment like we had in the 60s. I mean, obviously nothing will be the same as in the 60s, but I think at that point in the administration, with people taking to the streets, with people really pushing back. And I think that's why we ultimately saw the administration not appeal the ruling is because the public backlash was just so great. I know I saw that in Watergate. It was the public outcry after the Saturday Night Massacre when the special prosecutor was fired, the attorney general, the deputy attorney general. Um, It was the public outcry that made Nixon three days later rescind. He said, okay, I'll give you the tapes and I'll appoint a new special prosecutor. And I want to stress that because that is something that can happen today. It is the public outcry that could get policies changed, whether it's in terms of safe gun laws, whether it's in terms of immigration policy. There are so many things that the public, the Black Lives Matter movement, racial justice, um, these are things that Americans have the power to change. Um, It wasn't just the Vietnam War and the civil rights. So I hope people will continue to do that. But something you mentioned was the zero tolerance policy. And uh, although you won um, your case, the policy had resulted in thousands of family separations before the decision. And how many are still separated? Um, And where are the children whose parents were deported without them? And is there any chance of reunification now? Um, Because I think even if you support zero tolerance, that separation is so fundamentally at odds with democracy and humanity that I think people want to make sure that parents and children are reunited. So can you talk about some of those issues? Yeah. Um, I would like to be able to report that all the children are back with their parents now, but that's not the case. And I think for anybody who thinks this whole issue is dead, it's just not true. And we are still fighting. And the reason we are fighting and still have so much work to do is because the administration originally told us about 2,800 plus families that had been separated. And that was in court in the summer of 2018. They did not tell us about families that were separated in the very beginning of the administration. And it was only after there was an HHS internal report that came out that said there may be lots of families who were separated who have been, the government has not told the court, the ACLU, Congress, or the press about. We went back to court. The government resisted giving us that list amazingly. And the judge, to his credit, said, 
look, in this country, we are not gonna just simply forget about these children. Give the ACLU the list of names. It took them, we had a fight for that. We finally got the list and that list included another 1,556 names, 200 of whom were under five years old. But those separations had occurred so long ago that whatever contact information the government had was largely stale. So we've reached some of the families and the, almost all the parents have been deported without their kids. We've reached some of them by phone, but a lot of the phone numbers are stale. So what's happened with our partners, we've had to go on the ground in Central America, door to door, looking for the parents. But because of COVID now, that's been delayed. So we are still searching for so many families. And, and one of the tragic things is that the government is not allowing most families to come back, most parents to come back to the US. Very few are being allowed to come back and we're still fighting about that. But the parents have said, it's just too dangerous to bring my child back. So ultimately this may result in permanent separation between the parent and the child. Um, it, it's rough. And the other thing that's going on is that there are continuing separations and the government is saying well it's not a policy any longer we're doing it in individual cases where we think the child is in danger but what we found out was the government's separating because they say the parent has a crime we said what crime 15 years ago the parent had a non-violent theft offense therefore the parent could be a danger and so that's been brutal also that's another 1200 where, where parents are being separated for the most minor crimes or where a guard says, well, I don't think this father's doing a good job taking care of his child, you know, just unilaterally declaring it. So we are still fighting. We are still looking for these families. It's taking a lot of resources. And one of the things the judge said is, well, is the ACLU going to have the resources to do this? And we said, you know, there are just so many people out there who want to help. There are law firms jumping in. Paul Weiss Law Firm has been unbelievable. We've have public interest groups who are helping, and we um, we're just doing it. We have to, and we've gotten so much support from the public. But there's really no choice because if it was left to the government's devices, I don't think they would actually be looking. And the and the government, in fact, said to the judge, "We're not going to look for those families. If the ACLU wants to find them, let the ACLU find them." Which is, you know, going back to your point, Jill, about the difference between standing up in court on behalf of the United States when you were there and what some of the political appointees have been willing to say in court on behalf of the United States now. It's a pretty stark uh, difference, you, you know, and I think I just wanted to make one other point about public movements. I think the fact that Victor is even doing this podcast is such an unbelievable thing that when I was a freshman in college, the idea that I would be doing anything like this was so, be, there's not a chance in the world. And just that his generation and you know, are, are just out there doing things. You, you can't, you can't un, uh, uh, overstate how important that is. It just, you see it with the movements after the George Floyd killing and, and the, it's just, I, I just wanna, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't compliment him on being involved at this early in age because I just don't think that's something I would have thought of doing. Thank you. Victor is extraordinary, I admit, but we're hoping that this podcast will show other people of his generation what they can do and should be doing 
Um, just one last question on that issue though was the children who are now separated for a long time, mm -hmm. um, where are they? Um, I'm hoping they aren't in what we just saw in the clip with Rachel Maddow, that they are in some sort of more permanent foster care with a family that there's, or with relatives who were already in America. Uh, do you have any idea how many are yeah. institutions versus with people? No, so the ones that have been separated for a long time are now with people. Um, and so that ranges from a foster family that's hopefully doing a good job to a distant relative who maybe they didn't know to maybe an uncle who they had met. So I think it's a, it's a fairly um, wide range. But at the end of the day, you know, as you know, it's one thing not to be in the detention center, but the, the trauma that occurs from being separated from your parent is something that the medical community is saying yeah. may, never, may never go away. And, and that is really, that's the real stress that yeah. the government came in and said, Your Honor, if you want to visit some of these detention centers or homes, you know, you'll see that they're, they're fine. The judge said, I don't, I don't need to visit. The real issue here is that you're separating the child from the family, that these are one-year-old, two-year-old, three-year-old kids every night going to sleep saying, where's daddy, where's mommy? And so that, that's the real, I mean, I think that's what the medical community is saying is that even if in some objective way, the conditions are now okay for them, they're still without their parents. I mean, and some of them were so young when they were taken away that they don't even recognize their parents when they come back because they were eight months old when they were taken away and they were taken away for seven months and they don't even recognize. And the other is really sad thing is that we saw a lot of kids being so angry and resentful of their parents and which was understandable because at that age they can't understand why their parents couldn't stop the separation. And so they'd be screaming as they're being pulled away, mommy, don't let them take me. And the mother would just be standing there, obviously helpless to do anything. And the child would come back and say, didn't you love me enough? Didn't you want me? Why did you let them take me? And the trauma that that inflicts on the child, but also on the young parent, feeling so guilty, could I have done something to stop it? Where, of course, they couldn't, just that powerlessness. And just the feeling of the parents, parents would say to me, you know, I didn't want to ask where my child was or anything about my child for fear that I would be annoying them and that they would treat my child worse. I mean, for a parent to be in that type of situation, another mother said she asked where her child was and the person said Chicago and just walked away. And she said, I didn't know whether Chicago was a place, a person, an agency, um, you know, the sort of helplessness of it. It is heartbreaking. And I hope it will motivate some of our listeners to join with the ACLU in trying to protect these children. Um, but Victor, could you play a clip from the film that, that captures um, some of your thoughts representing Miss um, L? The government has a fair amount of technical arguments. My job is gonna be to make sure the horror of what's going on really stays front and center. For me, you know, just thinking on my own kids, it's just it's inconceivable. It's 
could be happening and that, you know, going out of my mind. So um, what was it like to represent her and knowing that your work would either keep her separate from her child or would help to unite them? Um, you know, as I said in the film, I feel like I was more nervous for this argument in district court than maybe at any other time in my career, including in the U.S. Supreme Court. And I think the reason is exactly what, what you're pointing to, Jill, is that the, the feeling of how much was at stake, not just for Miss L, but by that point, it was a class action. So thousands of, of families and the thought that if I lost, these parents might not see their children again or for a long time. And that, the difference between, and I, I just sort of thinking to myself about, you know, I think parents have all had the, the, the feeling of like you, you're torn around in a grocery store and your child's not there and you sweat, like, where's my child, you know, but just the thought of a parent not getting their child back and every day wondering how their child is doing and where their child is. I think I was feeling that pressure and the momentous nature of, of it. And what I really, and what I said in the film was I, you know, and you know, Joe, there's so many things you need to do in court and there's so many technical arguments you need to make sure you do correctly. But at the end of the day, in a case like this, the technical arguments can go both ways, but you really need to make sure that what's at stake is not lost and, and on the court and that the gravity of, of what was happening was felt. And so going in, I felt like I just needed to be fighting for these parents and, and making sure that when I walked out of court, it was clear what was at stake. Yeah, and you fought and then you won. Um, thank goodness that the judge allowed for the reunification of uh, Miss L and um, her daughter. Um, the last clip I just want to play um, for our audience is the moment when Miss L was reunited uh, with her daughter. Um. such a, a personal visceral moment um, that touches all of our hearts. Um, you know, what was, you know, having argued that case and then, you know, being there when Miss L saw her daughter, um, what was going through your mind during that moment to know that, you know, that she was ultimately reunited with um, her daughter? Yeah, I mean, it was very emotional. I, I you know, this is the worst policy I've seen in my, all my years, and that may have been that single moment may have been the most emotional moment I've had as a lawyer. And, and, you know, I think it wasn't just that they had been separated at that point for close to five months, but I think that both of them probably felt like they would never see each other again. 
you know, they were from a little village in the Congo, had gone through this unbelievable ordeal to get here, and then were separated, had no idea why they were separated, had no understanding of the system. And so I think they genuinely felt like uh, they'll probably never see each other again. So that coming together was so visceral and so raw. Um, you know, it was just, and I, and I think, you know, people have asked, and I think about, the intensity of the work at the ACLU and both of you have brought that up and it's tiring. You know, I mean, I think almost every lawyer would tell you that the job is tiring. Everybody's job is tiring, you know, but one of the things that keeps you going is the clients, at least for me, it's that, you know, you think about what they're going through and how hard they're fighting and that they're not giving up. And then you just you say to yourself, well, I can't give up. I need to keep fighting. I can't start feeling sorry for myself that I'm tired or I'm missing, you, you know, something. And um, that's what keeps you going. And I think without those kinds of moments, um, it would be hard to keep fighting. But, you know, fortunately, there are victories. There's defeats also. Um, and you just need to sort of roll with it a little bit. But it's, it's that. It's the clients that I think ultimately inspire me and I think my colleagues to keep pushing as hard as as we do. So before we run out of time, I want to just uh, get a sense, if you could, of what you're working on through the Immigrants' Rights Project, but um, also maybe just uh, in some of the other areas that the ACLU is doing, if you could just summarize for us maybe some of the key yeah. cases that are pending right now. So in the immigrants' rights area, I think one of the things that's first and foremost now is dealing with the pandemic. And obviously that presents serious challenges for the country. But what this administration has done is try and use it as a pretext to accomplish what they've been trying to accomplish for the last four years, which is end asylum. And so now they are using the pandemic to now bar even young children from coming in the country who are fleeing danger. So we are challenging that and saying that you have to provide children and, and asylum seekers with hearings and that there are ways to do it safely. And But the administration has simply categorically closed down the border under the pretext that it's necessary for, for COVID. At the same time, the administration is letting lots of other people in the country holding huge rallies, not pushing mask wearing. So that, and so in the immigrants rights area, that's one of the things we're doing as well as trying to get people out of conference settings. Um, around the ACLU, everyone is just extremely busy because the administration has tacked on so many fronts and voting rights. We are spending an enormous amount of time trying to make sure that people can vote by mail if necessary, that the, the elections are gonna be fair we are, we just had a big victory with this on the census which the president is trying to exclude undocumented immigrants in the area of reproductive rights you see lots of states now trying to say that because of covid people can't come and get abortions because it's not essential um lgbt the administration is still trying to exclude people based on, on that status, um, racial justice area, there, there is so much going on with police departments. So we are sort of unfortunately busy in almost every area we do, speech, the surveillance the administration's undertaking. Um, 
So I encourage all young people that we can use help. And it doesn't only have to be obviously at the ACLU or being a lawyer. You know, there's getting out in the street and protesting, but then there's also just little practical things of helping out, helping a lawyer, going down to the border. If you speak another language, translating, there's tutoring a child. And the one thing I wanted to say, if we have time, is that one of the, one of the things that I think happens, especially for young people, is it's very easy to fall into the trap that so much is going wrong, that there's such big problems that I can't really make a dent, so it's not really worth trying. And the one thing I would really urge people to think about is not to get overwhelmed by how big the problems are. Just do anything you can, one little thing. I mean, I've always said even if you just be nice to one immigrant or tutor one shot, you are helping. You can't feel like because you're not solving all the biggest problems in the country, you're not helping. It's really easy to get discouraged and think, well, what can I do? I'm just one person and helping one child doesn't solve all because there's other children who may not be helped. I, I really encourage people just to not overthink it. Just get involved in any way you can, in any small way. Well, that was the perfect wrap to the discussion. Um, thank you so much, Lee, for being on. We are so appreciative and we hope that um, with these last um, few months of the administration that you guys um, are still out there in the fight for um, protecting your civil rights and liberties because it has been so impactful. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. And Victor, it's very impressive what you're doing. And it's, honored, it's an honor to be on with Jill, who's had such a storied career in the law. Um, thank you so much for having me. Of course. Thank you, Lee.